is a force that's stirring up the waters, burning off the chaff. Mercy is the judgment of the Father.
What a song, huh? Wouldn't you like to meet the people that wrote that song? That could happen. Hey, um, let's watch TV. to the second and worst ever presidential debate. I'm Martha Raddatz. And I'm Edison Cooper. And before we get, begin, uh, we just need to do one last thing. <laughs> oh, much better. Now let's get this nightmare started. Please help us welcome the candidates, Republican nominee Donald Trump, and can we say this yet? Probably fine. President Hillary Clinton. <laughs> being here. Hello. My question is, do you feel that you're modeling appropriate and positive behavior for today's youth? Hi, Patrice. Uh, <laughs> let me uh, start by walking over to you just as I practiced. <laughs> right, left, right, left, right, left, plant, speak. Uh, now, uh, Patrice, you're a teacher? No. Uh, you have kids? No. You like kids? No. You've seen kids? Yeah. Okay, great. We're bonding already. Oh, my friend Patrice. Patrice, I, I strive to be a positive role model for all children. Uh, children like my daughter Chelsea and my granddaughter Chelsea Jr. <laughs> Mr. Trump, same question. Do you feel you're modeling appropriate and positive behavior for today's youth? No. Next. So you don't care about the kids? Anderson, I love the kids, okay? I love them so much I marry them. I've been helping kids my whole life. In 1992, I helped a kid named Kevin McAllister find a hotel lobby. You might remember the documentary Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. I agree that Obamacare can be improved, Ken. Uh, but, Ken, it does have its benefits. Uh, number one, insurance companies can't deny you coverage because of a pre-existing condition. Number two, no lifetime limits, which, you know, is a big deal if you have serious health problems. And uh, number three... Sorry. I thought I... And um, number three, women can't be charged more than... I thought I... We women can't be charged more than men for health insurance, okay? And number four. <laughs> Donald Trump said you should be in jail. He said you have hate in your heart, and he followed you around the stage like a shark. So my question is, what do you like about him? Well, this, this one's actually easy. Donald Trump and I disagree on almost everything, but... I do like how generous he is. Uh, just last Friday, he handed me this election. <laughs> Mr. Trump, one thing you like about Secretary Clinton. I like that she's a fighter and that she doesn't give up, which is why I need all my supporters to get out there and vote on election day 
Mark your calendars, write it down. Here's the date, it's November 35th. <laughs> and live from, from New, New York, York it's Saturday night! So do you laugh? Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. Maybe we should pray. Father, I pray that no one would leave this message before it's over, unless they have to go to the bathroom and then they have permission and then come back real quick. And I pray that the Prince of Peace would reign in our hearts. Lord God, I pray that you would cause us to proclaim the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I've tried to avoid this topic, but I think God has walked us right into this topic. This week we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, where King Solomon talks politics. If you're new or you attend only some of the time, it's important to understand that this is the ninth sermon in a series in which messages build on top of one another. So if you don't understand some things, don't be surprised and don't get discouraged. In fact, you can go online and you can catch up. And I always get to the main point at the end. In fact, I'll ask you to eat it and drink it. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1, who is like the wise and who knows the inter interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now that's fairly self-explanatory, isn't it? Barack Obama is our king, and you should keep his command. For he does whatever he pleases, and who can argue with him? And then you will know no evil thing. So what is his command? His command is federal law, added to existing federal law. I did a little research, and it turns out that no one knows exactly how many federal laws there are, because nobody can count that high. Well, like I was saying, Barack Obama is our king. And it looks uh, like next month, uh, Donald Trump will be our king. And they may say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. 240 years ago, our ancestors, our nation rebelled against the king and refused to do his command. I'm glad you acknowledge that fact and you have just confessed that sin and now repent and do whatever one of these men tell you to do. I mean, actually, after this last election cycle, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Just run home to England. 
This last election was really difficult for me. Long ago, I learned from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 that we don't know how the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Yet we do know that it does. And so an unborn baby is most likely a person. Even if that baby is the last and the least of these, my brethren. Several years ago, I spent a good deal of time praying with a woman who lost several babies, some of them in the worst possible ways that you could imagine. And two of them, she lost through abortion. There were demonic entities attached to all of these tragic deaths, or to be more precise, attached to her shame over these deaths. You see, Jesus had always forgiven her, but the evil one used her shame to keep her in bondage. So if you've had an abortion, I want you to hear this next sentence, and maybe this is the entire sermon for you, but you must know this. In the name of Jesus, under the authority of his blood, you are forgiven. And I also hope you know that Jesus has your babies. And now for the rest of you. See, I, I'm not that worried about babies. Jesus has them. But I'm concerned about mothers. The evil one would try to convince my friend that he had her children. But in each case, Jesus appeared and, re and, and revealed that he, Jesus himself, had her children. Every one of her children. But, but do you see what that means? And Jesus made no distinction between those that were killed before they were born and those that were killed after they were born. I'm saying that abortion does tremendous damage to mothers and to fathers and to doctors, and to our society, and to Jesus who bears that pain in his body on the tree. And so it's very difficult for me to vote for a candidate who wants to liberalize abortion laws and use my tax dollars to kill babies, some even in the process of being born. In the USA, we kill far more babies than were ever killed or sacrificed to Moloch in the Valley of Gehenna. And so the fears of some that we might sink into some sort of atheistic government collective where abortions are mandatory, as they were in communist China, those fears are not entirely unfounded. So if you refuse to vote for Hillary Clinton, I understand. In the early 90s, I used to preach that I was a one-issue voter. But 10 years later, I stopped saying that for a few reasons. Number one, I began to wonder if legislation was the best way to love mothers and babies and families. And number two, I began to realize that the last and the least of these were far more than just unborn babies. In 2003, I published a commentary on the Revelation. I began a three-year study on the book of Matthew. It made me realize and see how, how Christians have used absolutely terrible theology to justify war and racism in places like the Middle East. I began to realize that the Pharisees are us. Now I understand that nations 
need borders. But I hate the way that Donald Trump sometimes talks about poor Mexicans who are just desperate to feed their kids. And I understand that some religions ad actually advocate killing you, and yet that's not all Muslims. And even if it were, you are commanded to die for your enemies. That's how we fight in our religion. We're, we're, not, the, we're not the crucifiers, we're the crucified. That's how we win. When the Access Hollywood tape came out, I thought there is no way this guy's getting elected. It wasn't that he used locker room talk, but that he bragged consciously, consciously. He, he bragged about consciously and knowingly trying to commit adultery with a woman he barely knew, violating her covenant and violating his seven-month-old covenant to his third wife, Melania. I mean, if his bride can't trust him, who is obviously far, far more attractive than me, why should I trust him? It's not just unborn babies that are worth the blood of Jesus. It's every woman, Muslim, Mexican that you will ever meet. You cannot get more valuable than Jesus. Well, the fears of some that we might sink into some sort of xenophobic Nazi dictatorship those fears are not entirely unfounded. And so if you refuse to vote for Donald Trump, I understand. Well, some voted for a third party or decided not to vote, which, you know, is kind of like deciding not to decide. If that's you, some folks may be actually furious with you for they think your decision not to decide is a vote against democracy a vote against democracy and yet it's still a vote isn't it i mean even not voting is voting and not deciding is deciding so so you have to decide and no matter what you decide it seems to be wrong it's like you've been consigned to disobedience or something that's frustrating you cannot escape this problem called choice. And maybe that's why we each long for a king so we wouldn't have to decide. We don't know how to decide. Well, in America, democracy is king. So we tend to, we tend to think that whatever most people say is right, is right. We abdicate choice to the majority which the Bible refers to as the crowd. In, in America, we think that whatever most people think is right is, is right, but according to scripture, that's like entirely wrong. There are a lot of systems of government to be found in scripture, but as far as I can tell, there's only one instance of organized democracy. It's recorded in all four gospels, and it happened on a Friday. On that day, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, called for a vote. He asked the crowd, who would you have me release for you? Jesus Barabbas, some ancient manuscripts record that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Who would you have, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Bar-Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph? What kind of Jesus do you want? 
What kind of savior do you want? What kind of king do you want? And the crowd chose Barabbas. Pilate cried out, would you have me crucify your king? And the chief priest of the people of God responded, we have no king but Caesar. And the crowd chanted, crucify, crucify, crucify. Barabbas had led an insurrection in Jerusalem, the city of peace. He was a politician and a political dissident. He desired, he desired to overthrow Rome and create the independent uh, nation st state, the, the independent political nation state of Israel. He desired to do what Jesus refused to do, but could have done. I mean, Satan even offered to help him. That's what the temptation was about, remember? The principalities and powers of this world run on two promises. Number one, they promise safety for yourself. And number two, they promise vengeance on your enemies. Jesus didn't make those promises. But he required just the opposite. Number one, he required that you pick up a cross. That's not saving yourself. That's losing yourself. And number two, he required forgiveness of everyone even your enemies. Well, on that Friday, we humanity cast our vote. And on that Friday, God cast his vote. In flesh, on a tree, in a garden. Jesus is the elect of God. Jesus is the judgment of God. And Jesus is the king. And you don't vote for king. So Jesus is king regardless of how you voted and regardless of how your neighbor voted. He is king and all authority, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth and under the earth has been granted unto him. So in his name and under the authority of his blood, I implore you, stop freaking out about the election. This election, the last election, or any elections in the future. And if you say, but preacher, we might get crucified, the preacher must respond, correct. Did you not know that is how his kingdom comes? And have you not heard, you are not the electors. You are the elect. You're the church. Well, King Solomon saw none of this, but I believe that he foresaw all of this. In other words, I believe that scripture is inspired. So let's look again. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command, literally his mouth or his word, because of God's oath to him. To him is supplied by the translators. Well, as far as I can tell, God really only takes one oath in all of scripture. It's first spoken to Abraham, and it refers to this promised seed. It's reiterated to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promises David that he will establish the throne of his son forever. We very soon discover that this son is not Solomon or any of the other 
Old Testament kings that we read about in the, in the Old Testament, and yet in their loins, the loins of these kings, they carry the promised seed. Verse three, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he, this king, does whatever he put. What king is he talking about? For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? The Old Testament is like nonstop prophets saying to the kings, what the rip are you doing? Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's evil lies heavy upon him. For he, man, does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Man is evil and does not know. You get the picture? King Solomon is speaking of a king that is far more than just a mere man. First Samuel 8, 5. I find this utterly fascinating. Two generations before Solomon, the elders of Israel, they come to the prophet Samuel saying, we want a king to judge us like the nations. It breaks Samuel's heart. And God speaks to Samuel saying this, they have not rejected you, Samuel, They've rejected me from being king over them. You see, ever since God called Israel out of Egypt, he was their king and he would judge them from his throne. His throne was in the tabernacle between the cherubim on top of the ark where he appeared as a pillar of fire. When the pillar moved, the people moved. And when Moses lacked wisdom, he would enter the tabernacle and God would speak to him from between the cherubim and Moses would receive wisdom. Wisdom is a tree of life, writes Solomon. And Jesus is our wisdom, writes St. Paul. So I hope you're getting this breathtaking biblical drama. Israel, re Israel rejects God as king, so God gives them kings. But he warns them through Samuel about the evils of earthly kings. For a thousand years, Israel suffers under kings. Through, through Saul and then through David and through, through King Solomon, they, they suffer hope. For God has promised them a king carried in the loins of the descendants of David. They suffer hope. They suffer under these kings for a thousand years until the reign of Caesar Augustus, when God himself wraps his word in human flesh, born of a virgin, who then wraps the word in flesh, the king, in swaddling clothes and places him in a manger. Kings from the east, Iraq and Iran, they come and they bow down before him. But the king of the Jews, Herod, he tries to kill him. Ultimately, we all elect to kill him. The high priest confesses our sin. We have no king but Caesar. He dies on a tree in a garden on the Temple Mount where according to the Jews, God first breathed his ruach, his spirit into Adam. On that tree, Christ, the last Adam, 
surrenders that very spirit. Simultaneously, the curtain in the temple rips from the top to the bottom. Tombs are opened and saints come out in the city of Jerusalem. The Roman centurion drops to his knees and says, surely this man was the son of God. It's at that point, the edge of time and eternity that the king of glory invades the kingdoms of this earth and establishes his throne in your heart, which is now the king's sanctuary. and the seat of all power in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because we don't believe this incredible news, we freak out about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And then instead of being a blessing to our country, we become a curse For we act as if the kingdom of God is dependent upon Washington, D.C. So who's the king? The Lord. Where is his throne? In the temple that is you. What is his command, his word, his judgment? Well, that's where it really gets fascinating. We know that the law describes God's wisdom, but the law is like dead wisdom. It's like wisdom that's been crucified. Most of the Old Testament law was for a particular group of people at a particular time. Even the Ten Commandments get applied in different ways at different times. The law, both God's law and human law, can be extremely helpful. It's extremely helpful. Why? Because law describes love. But it's not love. God is love. And his word is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is God's word in flesh, even enthroned in your own flesh. When you surrender to him, you become or realize that you already are his body. Your job is not to judge God's judgment, as if God needed your authorization. As if God has a cause and he needs you to help him accomplish his cause. Your job is not to judge God's judgment, but to manifest God's judgment as the body of Christ. And then it's not a job, but something more like a dance. You cannot judge God's judgment, but you can judge laws which describe judgment. You can and should argue and even fight over politics. And I hope that you do. 
You can say, I think the best way, I think the best way to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself is immigration reform that involves deportation, a wall, and a very big door. And then, then, then you can argue back, oh, I think you're wrong. I think the best way to love God and love your neighbor is uh, some sort of general amnesty with uh, followed then by, for all the illegal, and then, and then legislative reforms. I think that's the best policy. You can and should argue and judge the laws, but ultimately, you cannot judge love. Why? Well, first, God is love. And love is constantly judging you. See, you can't even judge love in your own heart. You must submit to love in your own heart. And secondly, you definitely can't judge love in your neighbor's heart. The sanctuary of his or her covenant with Jesus. I mean, you can say to your neighbor, well, that doesn't sound like love. That doesn't sound like love. And I think the king in my heart is telling me to argue with you right now. You can say that. But ultimately, you don't know what love has or has not spoken in your neighbor's heart. Likewise, you don't know what truth has or has not spoken in your neighbor's heart. Truth and love is the king to be enthroned in the heart. In other words, obedience to the king's command is a subjective encounter in the depths of your being. There is such a thing as objective truth. His name is Jesus. But the obedience of faith is subjective encounter in the depths of your own soul. It's to be judged by truth and love sitting on the throne in your heart. So yeah, we try to avoid that, don't we? It's terrifying and yet the result is profoundly liberating. But I hope you understand this, the obedience of faith is not objective knowledge of good and evil. The obedience of faith is subjective submission to the good who is your king. Obedience is trusting truth who sits on the throne in the temple of your heart. And so it's entirely conceivable that the king told some of you to vote for Donald Trump as an expression of your love for the unborn in solitary, solidarity to truths that God has revealed uniquely and privately in the sanctuary of your own heart. And it's entirely conceivable that the king told some of you to vote for Hillary Clinton as an expression of your love for immigrants and refugee in, in, solid, in solidarity with the truths that God has revealed in the privacy and the sanctuary of your own heart, in your own story. And it's entirely conceivable that the king told some of you to vote for somebody else or just no one at all run away. Now this reality can be in thoroughly, thoroughly infuriating. And it, and it may be in thoroughly, thoroughly infuriating to you because you're thinking, that's no way to run a government. That's no way to run a secular government. And that, my friends, you see, is entirely true. For the kingdom of God is not a secular government. It's a body. And in a body, the head may say one thing to the hand 
and another thing to the eyes. But the hand may not say to the eyes, eh, you, you are not a part of the body because you are not a hand. In other words, the command is living and active and highly personal. So you may, you may say, well, okay, no way to run a government. But Peter, it's also incredibly dangerous. Yes. It may get you crucified. Yes and no. For the greatest danger is not losing your life for the sake of the king. It's keeping it. Next verse. No man, Adam, has power to keep the ruach, the spirit. That is power over the day of death. Solomon has been telling us that all the toil of man is vanity and striving after Ruach, the wind. We're all striving after Ruach, the spirit, because we all want to retain the spirit. In other words, we're all afraid to lose our life. But unless we lose it, we can't find it. On the sixth day of creation, God breathed his spirit Neshama there, also called Ruach in other places. He breathed his spirit into dust. And Adam became a living nephesh, a soul. No Adam is said to surrender his spirit, which is God's spirit, until the last Adam surrenders his spirit on the tree in the garden next to the temple. And the very spot where supposedly God breathed his spirit into Adam in the first place. That Adam, Adam, the eschatos Adam, is your king. And he came to help you lose your life, that you might find it. Doing so is a decision, and that decision is called love. These extremely talented and artistic diagrams might help you understand. In the beginning, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. But Adam seized control of life. He strived after the spirit. He held God's breath. Sin is holding the breath. Sin is holding your breath. When I sin, all my decisions are about what? Saving me. I even use God for that purpose. The kings of this world gain their power from your fear of losing your life, your fear of death. Satan has kept us in lifelong bondage through fear of death. They, you, they, they, they gain power from your fear of losing yourself. The kings of this world speak the language of rights, so they will say, you have a right to life. You have a right to choose. In other words, you are the king of your own life and all your choices. So the kings of this world all talk about your rights, but a man on a cross has no rights. 
The kings of this world say that they are defending your freedom. But scripture claims that this is not freedom. This is bondage to death. You see, holding your breath, that is saving your own life, is how we create the body of death. That is the old man that we have been preaching about. But what happens, what happens when Jesus is enthroned in our hearts? God's judgment becomes our judgment. And so we begin to love as he has loved us. We don't hang on to our life, but we begin to give it away. And in this is love. King Jesus doesn't talk the language of rights, but he is the logic of love. The logos of God. This looks like death, a man bleeding out. It looks like a man on a cross. It looks like death, but it's the beginning of endless life. Why? Because life is a communion of spirit. Life is a circulation of spirit between all the members of a body. See that Adam on the left, he has a sombrero, and that Adam on the right, he has a, a skirt, or maybe that's a she-Adam. But, but, but it's a communion of life between all the members of a body, the breath, the spirit, the life is in the blood. And when we surrender our spirit, when we expire, God inspires us with more. <sighs> life is a river that flows from the throne and circulates through all the members of the body and back to the throne as praise. This man that chooses to lose his life for the sake of love and then find it, this man is the new Adam that we've been talking about, preaching about. And this man is part of the body of the eschatos Adam that is Christ himself. A body is unified by obedience to the head and the circulation of life, which is in, is, is in the breath, which is then in the blood, the spirit in, in the blood. When, when you love, you are surrendering your spirit because King Jesus is enthroned in your heart. And in this way, God's judgment becomes your judgment. His judgment is love. And vengeance. According to Luke, it was the way Jesus surrendered his spirit that conquered the Roman centurion and caused him to drop to his knees and confess, surely this man was the Son of God. The vengeance of God was revealed on the cross when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. It was vengeance that burned away the old man and gave birth to the new man on his knees, worshiping the king. Verse eight, no man has power to retain the spirit, the ruach, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war. In other words, we all suffer the violence of this world. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked, the evil ones, buried. 
They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. The evil ones stand before the throne in the temple and they don't die to themselves, but they're proud of themselves. That's vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed, verse 11, is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Let me read that again. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Why? Because they want vengeance. Because they have taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, judged one another with the law, and now want to make things right. Because they won't forgive. But forgiveness is the judgment of God. In Deuteronomy, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Study the scriptures closely, and I think you'll see that he did repay. He did pay fully, completely on a cross. So Paul writes, present your body as a living sacrifice. Then quotes Deuteronomy, God will repay. Then says, love your enemies. Be kind to your enemies. And in this way, you will heap burning coals on their head. So, Jesus Barabbas and every secular government in this world promises, number one, to help you save your life. And number two, to help you have vengeance on your enemies. They call it justice. But King Jesus promises, number one, to help you lose your life. And number two, forgive your enemies. He says that it is life and justice. It is again clear, writes Karl Barth, that the divine state is quite incompatible, not merely with the wicked totalitarian state, but with every conceivable human government. Karl Barth was part of the Confessing Church in Germany. He wrote the Barman Declaration. He's saying in that quote, the real choice was not between the Nazis and some other government of this world. Just as the real choice was not between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the real choice is always between Jesus and the powers of this world. St. Paul wrote, be subject to the governing powers. But he also wrote that we battle against the powers. And we seem to forget that he wrote, like maybe most of his letters, from jail. Did you know that by some estimates, China may be the largest Christian nation in the world right now? This graph from the Council on Foreign Relations shows that the size of the church in China will soon, if it not already is, uh, the size of the church in China will be or is greater than the size of the Communist Party. Historically, the church has grown fastest and strongest when political power has not been an option and getting crucified is a very real possibility. It was the persecuted church that wrote the New Testament and conquered the Roman Empire. Many of my heroes of faith were born out of the struggle in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, Martin Niemöller, Corey Ten Boom, Martin Buber, Viktor Frankl, who Karl quoted last week. See, I, I really don't know 
I really don't know what would have happened if we had elected Hillary Clinton. But if we did become something like communist China, that would in no way stop Jesus. And I really don't know what will happen under Donald Trump. Perhaps we'll have years of prosperity and a renewed sense of kindness, or perhaps we'll sink into something reminiscent of Nazi Germany, but that would in no way stop Jesus. And it should in no way stop you. It's in places like communist China and Nazi Germany that the church does her very best work. It's in places like that that she gives birth to a baby who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Next verse. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. They stand before his throne and surrender to his judgment and give birth to his judgment. Verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. We'll talk about the fear of God later. The fear of God that becomes the faith of God in us. Verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. The illusion of control is vanity. Secular governments promise control and they call it freedom. Jesus calls you, calls, calls you he calls you to surrender control and it is freedom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pacifist that became an activist and was implicated in the plot to assassinate Hitler. On April 8, 1945, having just finished a prayer, the prison worship service was interrupted by two men who entered the room and said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Bonhoeffer whispered to a friend, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. The next day, April 9th, 1945, he was hanged at Flossenburg, just hours before the Allies liberated the concentration camp. It's said that as he approached the gallows, he broke free from the guards and he ran to the gallows on which he would hang. He hugged the tree and he said this. He cried out, O death, you are the supreme festival on the road to Christian freedom. Jesus, I'm coming home. Actually, you can live at home right now because Jesus is enthroned in the sanctuary of your own heart. Actually, he rules all of space and time from that throne within your soul. In the Proverbs, Solomon wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Your own understanding will not lead you to lose yourself, right? Your own understanding will not lead you to forgive your enemy. That's a bad strategy for any secular government. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. You must believe that the king in your heart has the power to move mountains in order to slide the path right under your feet. So you don't have to have a map of the path. 
you don't have to know who to vote for. You are not saved by your knowledge of good and evil, and you don't need the kings of the earth to tell you what to do. You just have to obey truth and love enthroned in the depths of your own heart, and you will walk in a freedom that absolutely terrifies the principalities and powers of this world. And you will know joy. The kings of the earth will plot and scheme against the Lord and his anointed. But you will laugh. It will rise from deep within your belly, from the judgment seat that is also a throne. It's the laughter of your king (laughs) that he's sharing with you. It's joy. Next verse. And I commend joy, writes King Solomon, or the king in Solomon's heart. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in all his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now this is strange, but for the past two months I couldn't stop thinking about this little video that I've kept on my computer for years now. The woman on the left has believed a lie and is in bondage to fear. The woman on the right knows the truth and trusts the one in charge of the ride. The woman on the left is a picture of your old faithless Adam. The woman on the right is a picture of your new faithful Adam and joy. (laughs) Tell me where she is it step good? Oh, no, it's not ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's gonna go. Alright, girls, here we go in three. No, no, no. Oh, 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 and I didn't go nowhere. I'm just kidding. Oh, I wasn't gonna do this, Courtney. Oh my God, just go. Just go. I'm scared. All right, y'all, just check your seatbelt real quick. Oh. You didn't check it? Did you check it? I ain't checked it yet. Just pull on it for me. There you go. same ride and you must believe that the king in your heart is in total control of the ride and when you do he will use you he will use you as his very own body he will use you to change the world 
And now, if you're like, dang, I don't know that I understood anything in that message. Everything I said, everything I said is summed up in this. On the night that we all voted for Barabbas, Jesus, the king, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. The dark cup is wine. The light cup is juice. They are both the judgment of God. Bring your throne room to the table and let the king take his rightful place. Believe the gospel. Amen. So Christmas is in two weeks, but the Lord has come. And he's seated on a throne in your heart right now. What I said a couple weeks ago, I really meant, I don't know who you should have voted for because I don't know what the king told you. But keep going to the throne. The truth is that I don't know who you should have voted for and I don't know why you voted for the person that you did. I'm guessing that it was probably a mix of the lady on the left and the lady on the right. <laughs> so there was some bad and there was some good. But you see, you keep going before the throne and the judgment of God burns away the bad and gives birth to the good, telling you who you really are and you will do the right thing. He will tell you. He will reveal his glory. He makes the nations prove. That's what's happening right now. The glories of his righteousness and he's even proving it in you. Uh, so may you continually live from that place standing before the throne. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, and I commend joy. Amen.